Before we would begin this evening, I just wanted to um, open by um, just expressing my gratitude to many of you who have been praying for our family over the past year uh, and for our son Jacob. Um, We appreciate your prayers very much, and the Lord is very good to us, and we're glad to be here. So before we begin this evening, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you said that if we ask anything in your name, that you will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so we pray this evening for your presence to be among us, Lord. I pray that you would speak through me this evening. I pray that you would prepare the hearts of your people to receive your word. I pray that your word would be preeminent above all else, as it is not I that speaks but you, Lord. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work effectually among us here this evening. We pray all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. Tonight we're going to read about an awakening that takes place within Scripture under the preaching of Ezra in the days of Nehemiah. And as you're turning to Nehemiah chapter 8, I'll just make a few comments um, to set the context of where we find ourselves in the history of Israel. This takes place during uh, or in and around the time of Israel's captivity to the Babylonians, and some exiles have returned to Israel led by uh, men, including Nehemiah, who led the people to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so that work has just been finished, and we pick up our reading here in Nehemiah chapter 8, and with God's help, I'll read the first 12 verses, Nehemiah chapter 8. And the scripture reads, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from morning until midday, before men and the women and those that could understand, And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which he had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Uriah, and Hilkiah, and Maaseah on his right hand. And on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, and Melchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadan, and Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua and Benai and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab and Shebathiah and Hajiah and Maaseah and Kalida and Isaiah 
and Jobadaz, and Hannah, and Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. And so they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, which is the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites taught the people, and said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God, mourn not nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. And God bless the reading of his word. Duncan Campbell, born 1898, was a Scottish evangelist who ministered in the islands of Lewis and Harris off the northwest coast of Scotland. And he witnessed and participated in what has been called the Lewis Revival that swept through the island in the 1940s. And in his memoir, he recounts his experience when he came to the island at the request of a local parish. And as the story goes, he arrived in the island late in the evening, very late in the evening. And after he arrived, just as he arrived, he was asked, would you mind coming to speak to the people? They're assembled at the church and they won't leave until someone comes and preaches to them. And Duncan Campbell testified that the revival on that island began even before he arrived. The Spirit of God was clearly at work. And as the revival that began continued for nearly three years, and thousands were converted to Christ. As we consider the account that we read here in Nehemiah chapter 8, as well as other great awakenings and movements of God throughout the Old and the New Testament, as well as throughout church history, I think it's a good thing that we look at these revivals, that we study these revivals and the circumstances around them, the catalysts that um, ignited these awakenings. I think that's, that's a, a good thing. But I, I shared this story about the Lewis revival because I think it highlights an important point that I want us to, to consider in our mind's eye as we go through our text here this evening. And the point is this. That every great awakening, every revival that has happened, that is happening, and that ever will happen, ultimately has its beginning with God, not men. Whether it's the personal revival of being born again, of bringing to life that which was dead, or the collective revival that we heard about last night from Brother Mickey among the people of God, ultimately, every revival has its beginning with God. Yes, God uses men. He uses various means. He works in response to prayer and the preaching of the word. But ultimately, revival begins with the Lord. He's the source. 
And Duncan Campbell was right when he said, I did not bring revival to Lewis. No, revival was there before I ever set foot on the island. God brings revival, and we do well not to forget that. But even though revival cannot be organized by us, we can, as G.C. Morgan said, set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people again. We can't make the wind blow, but we can set our sails to catch the wind. We, can, we must be ready and prepared for when it happens. And by the way, I, I don't think we are ready, if we're honest with ourselves. I think, for the most part, we're a lot like the disciples who, when they were out fishing all night and didn't catch anything, Jesus told them to cast their net on the other side, and probably with little expectation, they cast their nets, and they caught probably the biggest catch of fish that they had ever caught before. And I think we're a lot like that when it comes to revival. But what if revival actually happened? What if we actually set our sails and threw our nets out, and the Lord provided? And maybe a better question is, how do we actually do that? How do we set our sails? You know, there's all kinds of clever ideas and schemes of men or devices of men that they have tried to bring about revival. But we do well to look to the scriptures, to the word of God, to the marks of revival's past, to see how God works among his people in times of awakening. And so with God's help, I'm going to do that tonight as I expound to you Nehemiah chapter 8, to see the marks of revival. And in some ways, Nehemiah 8 is a, is a prototype of every awakening and every revival that has ever taken place. And so there's three points that I have from the text, just so you can follow along here. Three things that we see here. The first in verses 1 through 3 is the expectation of the people of God. The expectation of the people of God. Second is the preeminence of the word of God. And third, the effectual working of the spirit of God. The expectation of the people of God, the preeminence of the word of God, and the effectual working of the spirit of God. So let's get right into this. We'll begin here at verse one, the expectation of the people of God. The scripture says, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man in the street that was before the water gate. And I want you to picture for a moment this assembly of people. The people assembled themselves together, much like we've done here at Eastern Camp. And it says it was all the people. It's the entire congregation, men, women, and children, all that could hear with understanding, the text says. You know, we're roughly a thousand people here at camp. Some scholars estimate that there was anywhere from 30 to 50,000 people there gathered together at a particular time and place. It says at the water gate, which was on the east side of Jerusalem. And they gathered as one man, one purpose, one desire to hear the word of the Lord. The verse goes on, it says, And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. Bring us the book, they said to Ezra. We want to hear the word of the Lord. Do you see the expectancy that these people had? 
Do you see the expectation of the people of God? The readiness, the preparedness, the eagerness that they had to receive God's word. Bring us the book. We need the word of God. And that's exactly what the church needs today. A spiritual hunger for the word of God. If we're going to see revival like in the days of Nehemiah, then the people of God must cry out with the same fervor, bring us the book. Bring us the book. We need the word of God more than anything else. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you know where revival is happening today? Other than the persecuted church in which it's always happening. But do you know where revival is taking place? It's taking place in churches where the word of God, first of all, the word of God is being preached faithfully. But secondly, where there is a hunger among the people of God, for the word of God. And those two things always go together. Faithful preaching and hungry people. Sheep look for green grass. That's how it works. But sadly, there's not a lot of green grass out there these days, or at least not here in the West. We're in many churches. Sermons are getting shorter. Preaching is getting lighter and theology is getting shallower. And I think that, I believe that we're living in many ways, in days like the prophet Amos prophesied about in Amos chapter 8, where he said, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from north even to the east, and they shall run to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. There is a famine for the word of God. Oh, there's lots of Christian material out there. There's lots of sermons being preached. But is it filled with the word of God? Is it saturated with the word of God? And is there a hunger among the people of God to receive that word? You know, the true children of God desire that word. They need it because they know they need it to live, to be sustained. And those are the ones who are ripe for revival, like in the days of Nehemiah that we read about here. You know, the second verse says, And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation. So he brings the law, and he read, he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, from morning until midday. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. You see the expectation that they had? You see the eagerness? Do you see the readiness that they had to receive the word of God? It says, from morning until midday. That's like six in the morning until about lunchtime. The ears of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And it actually says later on in verse 5, it says that when Ezra opened the book, that all the people stood up. So imagine that. All of the people standing for, what, six hours, listening to the reading and the preaching of God's word. You know, it's crazy when we think that people struggle or say that they struggle sitting through a a 45-minute sermon. People say, well, they they don't have the attention span for that. But it's incredible that we have such good attention spans for so many other things. We're able to sit through a a two-hour movie or a, a football game with our eyes glued. We don't have any attention issues there. But when it comes to the Word of God, we get antsy so quickly. But the people stood. You see this expectation that they had to receive the word of God. And they stood up and the, there was this, this reverence for the word of God. And I think that leads into our second point that we see here. 
First, the expectation of the people of God, but secondly, the preeminence of the word of God. That is the superiority of the word of God above all else. And this, this is the point when Ezra, here in verse 4, this is the point when Ezra takes center stage. It says, And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and opened the book in the sight of all the people. It was at this moment that Ezra the scribe steps forward. Not because he was the center of attention, no, but he represented the word of God, and so he takes center stage. And we learn something about Ezra when we look back in the previous book, Ezra chapter 7. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of God and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. For 14 years, Ezra had prepared himself for this moment, studying the word, understanding its meaning, applying it in his own life, teaching it to others. And now, now was the time for God to use him. He was prepared and he was ready. God had prepared the man for the moment and the moment for the man. And that's what God does in his grace. He raises up men, in this case Ezra, faithful men to lead in times of revival. Leadership is one of the greatest gifts that God gives to the church. Good, faithful leaders. Men who will rise up to preach and to lead the people. We see that in the history of Israel. And in the same token, God judges by taking away the leaders. But in this case, God raised up a man, Ezra, to bring the word of God to the people, to lead them. And we see that so clearly here in the text. In verse 3 it says, And the ears of the people, when Ezra brought the law and he begins reading it to them, the ears of the people were attentive unto the book of the law. And when he opened it, the people stood up. And I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice the, the leadership that Ezra was taking here. And I think it, it, it highlights an important principle, something that we see here in the scriptures. It's subtle, but it's important. And it applies in, in broader senses to the preaching of God's word. When the preacher takes the word of God seriously, as in the case that we see here with Ezra, when the preacher takes the word of God seriously, the people take the word of God seriously. That's what we see here in the scripture. In the studying of it, and understanding it, and applying, and living it, it is reflected in the people. Look at verse 6. It says, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And how did the people respond? It says, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Do you see the connection here? Do you see the connection between Ezra the preacher and the response of the people? Where the word of God takes preeminence in the preacher and the preaching of the word, the word of God will take preeminence in the lives of the people. And so in this text, there is a strong exhortation to the ministers and the preachers of God's word. And I know that there are many brothers, preaching brothers and ministering brothers who are here. This text speaks to us. 
to take with grave seriousness the ministry that God has given us of preaching his word. We're leading God's people. They follow us. If revival is not happening in our lives, it will not happen in the lives of our people. If the word of God is not preeminent, if it is not our highest authority, then it will not be preeminent and it will not be the highest authority of our people. And so the weight falls upon us to take this with great seriousness and also to examine the ministry that God's given us because the people are a reflection of us. But getting back to our text and to the point here, whenever the Spirit of God is at work, this is really the main point, that whenever the Spirit of God is at work, the reading and the preaching of God's Word takes center place. And that's what we see here. You know, Ezra and the men that accompanied him up on that platform, up on that pulpit that was prepared, they were not the focal point. The Word of God was the focal point. And the people recognized that the words that they were hearing were not the words of men, but the words of God. Second Peter chapter 1 affirms this point here in the New Testament. It says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These were not men's words. They were the words of God. And the men were simply the tools that God used to bring his word to the people. But I want you to notice as well, in the next verse, how God used them. Because he did use these men to bring his word. And it says in verse 7 that these men, it says of them, that they caused the people to understand the law. And it says that they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, or in other words, clearly, And they gave the sense and caused the people to understand it. So they didn't just read God's word, but they explained it. They expounded the law of God to the the people. And I think perhaps this verse is, is one of the clearest biblical definitions that we have of expository preaching within the scripture. It says that they caused the people to understand it. They gave the sense so that it became clear to them. Matthew Henry, commenting on this text, says this. He says, Reading is good and preaching is good, but expounding brings the reading and the preaching together, and thus making the reading more intelligible and the preaching more convicting. Clear and proper exposition of Scripture is absolutely critical in preaching. We don't need more stories. We don't need long introductions to catch people's attention, to keep them entertained. We need the Word of God in its clarity, clearly read, rightly divided, and properly explained so that the people can understand it. We need clarity from the Word of God more than anything. And I think this raises another point that I want to touch on, and I don't want to ruffle any feathers here, but I think there's a point of application in this text that is, is very relevant. You know, this text is explicit about the importance of the clarity of Scripture. When it says in verse 8 that they read in the book of the law of God distinctly or clearly, 
and that they gave the sense. Obviously, it, it shows the importance of the clarity of God's word. And I think just understanding the context of what was going on here, that this group of people was primarily exiles who had come from Babylon and the Babylonian captivity. Many of the people who were there were likely born in Babylon and spoke the language of that place. And, and the scriptures that were being read were in Hebrew. They were likely, or they were not written in the, in the language, or at least the first language of many of the people who were there. And so it was important that the law of God, the word of God, was translated to them, translated in a way that they could understand clearly. And you might be able to guess where I'm going with this, but when it comes to translation of God's words, Bible translations, I think that this is something that we as a church and as a denomination need to to really think about. The reality is that the King James translation is hard to understand, especially for those who are younger and those who didn't grow up with it. And I know many of us have grown up with it and, and we've gotten used to it. And, you know, we can argue, you know, the, the debate over Bible translation. I've never really been a part of this at all, at least maybe not until now. But, you know, we can argue over the accuracy of words and manuscripts, and, and that's important to a degree, there are definitely some bad translations out there, and I'm not saying that, that we shouldn't be thoughtful in, in this in any way. But this is important. The clarity of God's word is important. And so I think we need to have some serious conversations about when and how this is going to change in our church. And I'm not saying that I have the answer. I understand that this is a complex issue and it's difficult. It's something that we've perhaps talked about for many, many years. But at some point, we have to ask ourselves, are we elevating tradition? And Brother Mickey touched on this last night. Are we elevating tradition over the preeminence and the clarity of the Word of God? And if we are, then we need to repent of that as a church. The Word of God must take preeminence in all things. In our church, in our families, in our lives, it has to, in everything. And what happens when it does? What happens when the word of God is our highest authority, when it takes preeminence above all else? Well, I can tell you what it did in my life. It brought revival. It brought me back to life again. It moved me from a place of simply believing things to a place of conviction from the word of God. You know, belief in, a belief is, is something that, that you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. And that's what we need. We need Christians with biblical conviction, like they had in the early church, like we see throughout church history, those who took a bold stand for the word of God. And that's what we need today. Conviction that comes by the word of God, through the spirit of God. And that leads us to our third and final point. First, the expectation of the people of God. Second, the preeminence of the word of God. And finally, the effectual working of the spirit of God. And this is the point here in verse 9. This is the point when we see the people are cut to the heart. 
It says, And Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. The people were cut to the heart. So much so that Ezra actually had to tell them to stop weeping. They were weeping so much that he said, stop, don't weep anymore. You're weeping too much. Just think about that for a moment. The word of God had brought such conviction upon the people of God as they recognized their own transgression of God's law that they could not stop weeping. You know, in the Lewis Revival, as I read a little bit more about it, Duncan Campbell records that there was, there was such a deep conviction of sin from the Holy Spirit that there were people who were weeping, like we see here in the crowd here in Nehemiah chapter 8. There were people who were weeping over their sin, saying, Oh God, is there mercy for me? That's what happens in revival. He, he records another account of, of a group of young men who had just come from the dance hall. And they came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of their sin, and they were converted. And those men went on, some of them went on to become pastors in Scotland. These weren't fake conversions that were taking place. These weren't emotional responses to the word of God that we so often see. This was the effectual working of the Spirit of God through the Word of God to bring conviction of sin, genuine repentance, and complete surrender and obedience to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what happened in the island of Lewis. It's exactly what happened in the days of Nehemiah. And that is exactly what happens in all Spirit-filled awakenings and movements of God. A deep conviction of sin by the Spirit of God through the word of God that cuts to the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's quick. It doesn't mean fast. It means it's alive. It's living It's powerful, it's active, it's always working, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. There's no blunt side to it. It's all edges, piercing, penetrating below the outward facade, deep to the inward parts of our being, to the hearts of men. And in the days of awakening, this is what happens. And I would go so far as to say that if there is no conviction of sin, then there's no true revival. I think this, this mark is so distinguished, it's so clear that it's, it's a distinguishing mark of a genuine and a fake revival, whether personally or collectively. You know, oftentimes we think of revival as, as people being inspired and motivated and, and recharged. But one of the defining marks, one of the clearest marks of genuine revival is a deep conviction of sin. And we heard on Sunday night that the gospel brings revival. And it does. The gospel brings us a knowledge of our sin before a holy God and of our need of a savior as a remedy for that sin. It cuts us to the heart. And it has to. 
The Apostle Peter preached a powerful sermon in Acts chapter 2, another great time of revival among the church, among the people of God. And at the end of that powerful sermon that he delivered, it says in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Same words, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Do you see the response of the people? They're asking, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You shall receive revival. The word of God brought conviction of sin. Conviction of sin brought repentance. And repentance always brings change. It brings revival. And so I want to ask you the question tonight. When was the last time that you were cut to the heart? By the word of God. When was the last time that you wept over your sin? Not a sin, but your sin. You know, I didn't weep over my sin until several years after I was baptized, when the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, opened my eyes to the reality of my sinfulness before a holy God, to see Him more clearly, to see His holiness, brought me to a place of recognizing my sinfulness. Much like Isaiah, who had a vision, who saw the throne room of God, saw Him in His glory and His holiness, and He said, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. We need to see God. And you might say, well, I'm not really the emotional type. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It makes no difference whether you're emotional or not. I don't think all the people, this group of people that we read about in Nehemiah chapter 8, I don't think they were all the emotional type. I don't think everyone in the city of Nineveh who wept over their sin and repentance and put on sackcloth and ashes, I don't think they were all the emotional type. Blessed are those who mourn, the scripture says, for they shall be comforted. They all wept tears of repentance when they looked into the mirror of God's word. James 4 verses 8 and 9 says, draw nigh unto God and he will draw nigh unto you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Yes, joy comes in revival. It does, but first comes godly sorrow. This is the effectual working of the Spirit of God that happens and must happen continually in the life of every true believer. And when this godly sorrow does its work, it brings joy, true joy, real joy. Verse 10 says, And they said unto them, that is the people, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. 
because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. These are the marks of revival. The expectation of the people of God, the preeminence of the word of God, and the effectual working of the spirit of God among the people of God. So may God bless his word and work his word in each of us. Amen.